you need to construct a differentiated lens. And what we mean by differentiated lens is a different way of looking at the world, specifically a different way of looking at assets, such that you can see an asset that everyone else can see, and you have a way of looking at that asset that generates more return than everyone else does. And once you have a differentiated lens, you're like a kid in a candy store because like, you could just buy stuff that's on the market. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Kagan 2.0, aka Rabbi Candlers, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Moses Kagan. Yes, you heard me right. He's got the same last name, but we are not related, I think. He is a Los Angeles-based, very successful real estate entrepreneur. I want to learn more about how do you actually make money doing real estate. What Moses does is he founds beaten down buildings, not slumlord, beaten down, buys them, renovates them, and holds them as long-term investments. It's a very atypical strategy compared to a lot of other real estate stuff I've heard about. He's also really big on Twitter, which is where we connected, and it's a really big part of his business. You can learn more about Moses on Twitter at Moses Kagan, also his website, kagansblog.com. If you've ever wanted to learn more about real estate and hear about behind the scenes from starting at zero, you're going to love this episode. Here are three gigantic things. Number one, how to break into real estate, even if you have no money. Number two, how to actually create your own digital country club. That was cool. And number three, how he structures his real estate deals. I know when I was a young lad, I always wanted to hear how do people actually make money specifically in real estate. And so you're going to get that in this episode, plus a bunch more air nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, I got two announcements for you. One, I love you. That was an announcement. Number two, check out youtube.com slash okdork. It's my channel. We make awesome videos just for you, literally for you. Make sure you're subscribed. I know you're subscribed, so ignore this. And number two, check out appsumo.com, the number one digital marketplace for entrepreneurs. So if you are buying or selling any software online, go to appsumo.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Steve1918, dollar sign 1615. I had to say the whole thing. He said, great info and great fun, insightful, informative, and entertaining, just great. Yes, thank you, Steve, $19181-1615. Thank you, and thank every other one of you gorgeous listeners. You're the best. If you want a shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you're listening to this. I check every single one of them. Dude, how are you? How is life? Who is Moses Kagan? What's going on? Uh, life's good. Uh, my partner and I are visiting uh, Austin. Is that wife or your business partner? Uh, sorry, good question. Uh, business partner. It's very modern. I yeah, no, it is true. It's true. Uh, and 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 I have I have a wife. I have an ex-wife too. So I've, I'm. Uh, you have two wives. Well, I a new one and sequentially, old one. not not at the same time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, my business partner and I are here. Um, just really checking out possible deals. Very very early in the process, and I don't. We we could probably get into this more, but um, we have historically only bought properties, not only just in Los Angeles, but like only in probably six neighborhoods in Los Angeles. So everything we've done. We renovated 100 buildings all in like six neighborhoods. It's quite a trip, let's say, to, to be looking somewhere entirely different. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. So let's just talk about being a Kagan, <laughs> that we're both Kagan. We are both Kagans. That's and are you a Cohen Kagan? Because there's the Cohen Kagan and I'm the non-Cohen Kagan. So, I mean, I don't know for sure, but Kagan is, is my understanding, and you, maybe you could correct me, but my understanding is that Kagan is basically the... Um, Russian translation of the uh, of the of the name Cohen. Yeah. So uh, yeah, my family's all like uh, Eastern European Jews, almost exclusively from Russia. So yeah, that's where we got it. Did you grow up being like, man, I'm a Kagan? There's other Kagans out there. I need to meet them. When I saw you online, I was like, that's my brother. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> my mother always was like, you're all related. Like she she's not a, obviously she's not a Kagan. She was a Kurtzman. My that name comes from my father, obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, no, she always like. 
made it clear that that was like that we were probably related to every other Kagan. I was on a date recently. I'm single. I don't have any ex-wives yet. I hope I never. I used to joke like, I, you know, I hope my third wife will be great, <laughs> but I'd rather not, you know. Just... I can't recommend getting divorced. Don't, I would avoid that if at all possible. Oh yeah? Do you want to? No, no. I mean, I don't really want to go into it, but I just, it's an expensive, painful thing for everyone involved and and I would recommend not doing it. Did you have kids with her? My first wife and I have um, two uh, sons who are uh, 10 and 8. We actually, we're great co-parents. Uh, we get along pretty well. And uh, and then my new wife uh, and I have a 17-month-old. Congrats, man. Thank you. I was meeting people with this whole IVF thing, and I wish anyone who's, who wants to have kids can have it. And ideally, there's certain people I'm like, you should have more kids because I think you'd be great parents. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the, one of the screwed up things about, I mean, it's cool that people are waiting longer in some ways to have children and like everyone's sort of like more financially stable and probably more mature and that stuff's all good. But watching some people, some friends of ours go through that process of like trying to have kids when you're kind of like pushing forward, it it's, uh, can be rough. Yeah. Well, two things to share and you know, uh, open up with you. One, I started looking at freezing my sperm. Mm-hmm. So I put it in my freezer just to kind of <laughs> see what would happen. And it's like, <laughs> it's supposedly not that, that it's not that good. No, no. My buddy uh, sent me some clinics. So they mail it to your house, you package it up, send it off, and then they charge you. It's like a SaaS business. And they charge yeah. you a monthly fee to, tr- to hold your sperm. That doesn't surprise me. Which um, was interesting. And then last night, I was reading this article about how birth rates have gone down. And like the population is in certain countries. That's decreasing. a crazy story. Yeah. I don't know why, but last night I was like, Noah, you need to go fix that. <laughs> like you need to go impregnate as many men and women as possible to help the world. Yeah, well, I mean, cosign. <laughs> Go for it. No, I, uh, I, I'll i say having children is, uh, well, whatever. I'm not going to say anything like profound here, but it's uh, it's extraordinarily hard and painful and expensive and also incredibly amazing and wonderful and like the best thing you could ever do. So uh, strongly recommend it. I was really hoping to be straight that you'd be like, yo, they suck. <laughs> and like, they're never going to listen to the show anyways. So no, no. <laughs> no, no. I, well, I was just thinking, I mean, it's, it's it's a, it's the kind of thing where like if someone showed you this as an investment, right? Um, and it was like okay, here's walk me a, through it. Walk here, me okay, through. here's an investment where you're going to go massively negative from the second the kid's born. Suddenly, everything about your life gets worse. No question. Like there, you can put you can sugarcoat it, but like basically, you're not sleeping. You're paying a lot more money. You and your wife are like at each other's throats a little bit about who's going to take care. Of, and uh, to be honest. My current relationship, things have actually been much easier in part because we have a lot more money than, than I had going through this the first oh, time. Oh, interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's really hard. So from like a life happiness perspective, things go massively negative, okay? And then they do start to improve. And if, and if things go well, if you dodge, you know, all the terrible things that can happen with children, both, you know, physically and health-wise, but also like just in terms of dumb luck, because that's, I mean, they can, they get... If something bad happens to them, that ruins your life, right? So it's just an investment where like it's massively net negative. And then if everything works out as they age into adulthood and beyond, it's amazing, right? Like you have, I think having adult children is like the best thing about my father's life. Like he, he loves it, right? He's got, he's got grandchildren now, the whole thing, freaking amazing. But you have to dodge a bunch of bullets along the way. Yeah. I definitely have heard that. And I think there's been studies. This is what people that white people listen to NPR always. Well, there's a study. <laughs> uh, you know, one was that you're happier with once you get your wife or partner, husband happier overall, but the net is actually negative with the children piece. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, yeah, there's <laughs> some, no, I mean, it's look, it's, it's just really hard and you're not. And the thing is like, I said it again, I'll, I'll repeat it. Like it, it's sort of like you love them so much that if something goes wrong, even the, like, no, 
nothing that you can control. They get hit by a bus or 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 they fall in with the wrong crowd and they end up being, you know, drunks or who the hell knows. Yeah. Like it's completely outside of your control and yet it will entirely shape your life. Like there's no way to detach yourself from it. So if I pitch that to you as an investment, it's certainly going to be terrible for a while. You're lose, and then a lot of money. <laughs> and then if everything goes okay, then eventually 20 years from now it'll be awesome. Like I'm not sure you would sign up for that investment rationally. Like of yeah. course like we have the urge to procreate and all that other stuff. So but anyway, it's- I'm a, glad that we enjoy sex because if, <laughs> if we didn't enjoy sex, there'd be no, probably no kids. There probably would be no kids. We're coming back on that for just a second. One thing that I've, I've been wanting to, to learn and be honestly be taught in school is partner selection. And so I don't want to go into the divorce. I, I grew up in a divorce household, but I am curious, how would you advise your children on partner selection given that you, you've had an experience with one that didn't work out and then you, you found a new partner? And then we'll talk real estate and money, all that stuff. Yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah. this is also the life stuff. No, no, this is a good, it's a good question. It's something I've thought about a lot. I think, put it this way, like the right relationship, actually, here's like a great tie with real estate. The right relationship is a compounding asset. In other words, you both get better individually as you get further into your career and you get wiser and more mature and more knowledgeable and you have like kind of a deeper and longer term perspective. Those are all things that happen to adults as they get older. I think that's like a natural good part of getting older. So you're both you're individually going through that process of self-improvement and also the synergy between the two. If you have, if you're in the right relationship, the relationship itself is getting better too. Yeah. As you invest in it and you have all these good memories together and also go through th hard things together and all that stuff. So I guess what I would say is when you're in the right one, it should feel like over time, everything is improving and building on, uh, on what came before. One thing I wonder with that, in terms of how, what do you think you've chosen differently or how have you observed your partner now? I was talking with a good friend of mine uh, a few weeks ago and he's, he said, anything rewarding is challenging, mm -hmm. which I went on some dates with some challenging people. And I was like, I don't know if I want it to, I think it's challenging enough to stay happy together with someone <laughs> for very many years. Yeah. I don't know if it should be challenging. Yeah. I mean, I find with my, with Simran, my wife, who uh, is just a wonderful person, we're, we have a lot, this is going to sound weird, but it almost felt like we were from the same family. What I mean by that is, our backgrounds are so similar. Like we didn't, obviously we didn't know each other growing up or anything, but I kind of like almost felt like I knew her family before I ever met them. Like I was like, oh, you're the type of people that were at the faculty parties that my parents used to drag me to when I was a kid. My, my dad was a college professor and um, we used to go to the art department faculty meetings. There's all these interesting people, like weird electronic musicians and people doing interesting sculpture and all that stuff. And they- you know, this is upstate New York, right? Which is not in general the most educated part of the world. But these are all college professors. They're all they've all read interesting stuff and they're traveling interesting places and they're vegan when no one has even heard what being a vegan, you know, before I even met Simran's parents, I was like, oh, these people are are like, I know what they're gonna yeah. be like. They use Tom's toothpaste. <laughs> they're not I don't mean to make them out like they're no, no, super no, granola, but I mean they're they're just like and her you mom, saw yeah. her and you saw she's the byproduct. Yeah. And I, they're also from upstate New York, although a different part. And she and I went to the same college and, and we're both like anywhere you turn from a preference perspective, like if you ask both of us what, uh, what restaurant we'd like to go to, we're both going to like the same restaurant. We're both going to like, like traveling to the same places. So there's a lot of crossover like that. When you met your previous partner, I am curious, like, was it great at the time? And then over time? Yeah. Yeah. It was just different. It's just, I mean, she's, and she's great. She's uh, English and um, there were like a lot of cultural differences. 
and I also, and frankly, like she was a great wife, and I just like I was too immature to be a, to be a great partner for her, honestly. Oh damn, man. Yeah, man. I was like, we got married pretty young. Like I was, I was twenty seven when we got together, and it was just like, like I, I had a lot of growing up that I needed to do, to be honest. Yeah, how'd you do the growing up? <laughs> well, getting divorced was part of it. A big part of it was, and this is maybe where we can start talking about real estate a little bit. Or, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I went to prep school, and I went to Princeton, and I went into investment banking after that in London. I had a lot of what I now would describe as fake confidence. There was a lot of potential about me. Like I'm smart, like and people could see that and earnest and people could see that. And I had, you know, Andover and Princeton on my resume. What's Andover? Yep. Oh my God. I yeah. love that stuff. All right, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk no about. problem. And uh London School of right, Economics. I'm way too excited. <laughs> no, that's all right. You said London School of Economics? Yeah, uh, LSE. Andover, Princeton, LSE. Dude. So well, so right. So people the world was treating me like I, w- I had a lot of potential, like I had a lot to offer. And maybe I did, but I did. Well, maybe I had a lot of potential, but I don't think I had a lot to offer because I didn't know anything. When you're like 23 years old, you don't know anything. Like you're, you're, you have some ideas about the way the world works, but you don't really know anything. And crucially, like you haven't actually proved anything either. You know, you've got some good grades or whatever, but there's not, you're a blank canvas in a lot of ways. And so I was puffed up with this, what I now regard as fake confidence. Like I had a high opinion of myself, but ultimately it was not deserved. And then 2009, 10, 11, 12, like the world beat me up and we didn't have a lot of money and no one cared that I went to Princeton and in the real estate business, like no one cares. And then slowly but surely, my partner and I, like crawling across glass, bootstrapped a real estate private equity firm starting with basically no capital and like without like a big institutional backer or anything like that and it was extraordinarily painful we made a ton of mistakes and we could talk about that too but the net result was that after climbing that mountain by the time i was like thir- uh, 35 36 i realized that like not only had i crossed that horrible like the gl- I, I had crawled across the glass, but also that I could do it again. Like I now have skills. I know how to make money. I, you could drop me anywhere with no money, probably in any city, and I could figure out how to make money in real estate. That is real confidence. That's not fake bullshit prep school dipshit confidence. That's like I have skills that could feed me and a family and ultimately would allow me to replicate what we've already done again. That was for me, that was a big part of the growing up. That was a, that was the real growing up, I would say. Proving to yourself? Yeah, there's some of that because obviously the psychology of the fake confidence piece is like you're projecting this image of knowing everything and being so smart and and whatever, but you actually haven't done anything and you're or at least I was acutely conscious of that. And so now it's a different thing. It's like it, it, uh, there's a real feeling of, like I said, just being able to replicate it. And what were happening in your 20s? Oh, let's see. So I did, uh, I graduated college when I was 23. I graduated LSE when I was 24. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And um, I was living in London during my time at LSE with a, uh, one of my best friends who um, at the time was helping this billionaire buy classified advertising media. You know those auto trader magazines that you yeah. do? Okay. So those are actually, not anymore, but they were spectacular businesses. They were little local monopolies, right? Like imagine you were like the guy who had the most read uh, little magazine to sell used cars. 
So imagine you're the guy who owns the most read little free magazine to sell used cars in Warsaw in Poland. Or it kind of like doesn't matter. Pick a city. No one wants to advertise their used car in like the second most widely read classified advertising thing, right? It's a little, you want to be where all, it's, it's yeah. all about liquidity. You want to be the one that's advertising the one that's got the most readership. So each of these things was like little local monopolies in each little city all over. And this guy was buying them in France and Italy and Eastern Europe. And my friend was helping him. And it was an amazing business. He had a French publicly traded company that traded at like 12 times profits. And my friend would go buy some like local little monopoly, like printed cash in Lithuania, would buy it for like six times profits. And or instantly seven, it's instantly it's worth double. As soon as the uh the profit from the local Lithuanian subsidiary is consolidated into the French publicly traded vehicle, instantly each dollar or however you want to think about the currency gets is doubled in value. Yeah. And so it's basically a roll-up play. So this guy was going around Europe buying anything he could get his hands on. My buddy Max was helping him. And uh, I saw that and I was like, I want to be on the deal side. I want to be like a lawyer. This seems awesome. And um, so Max got me a job at um, this uh, tiny little boutique investment bank that was helping this guy uh, do those deals. And so that was my uh, entree into banking. And I uh, did that for a couple of years. Eventually, like- You're like partying around Europe? I was doing more- Because I'm thinking you're at Ibiza. You're like- I did go to Ibiza. I ended up doing more of my stuff in London. Okay, so I get in there, right? And everyone else they've ever hired has like already had an investment banking background. I had none. I was embarrassingly ignorant of the entire process of how this whole business works. And but pretty quickly I realized that like I was a terrible financial modeler. I had, I didn't know any accounting. Like I didn't know what EBITDA was and they were like please make this like LBO model. And I didn't even know what an LBO was. Like it was embarrassing. But what I realized is that I was pretty good at understanding businesses. So that's the first. I liked reading about little businesses. The second thing was, this is immediately post.com crash. Uh, so this is like, well, not immediately post. This is like 2004 or five, And none of the banks in England were covering the little tech companies because they were just like, oh, the internet's a fad. Like this is all bullshit or whatever. But like these little companies, some of them were minting money. I mean, it was the, the, these were good business models. I mean, they were. They, it was now in retrospect, it's obvious, but it wasn't really at that time. But these things were growing quickly, and they had really good margins. And, and when things like Google started to go public, you could see what the comps were, like the valuation multiples, and you just be like, this little crappy company that's making you know two million pounds in revenue or three million pounds in revenue is not worth you know. 15 million pounds, it's worth 30 million pounds because you once you start putting the multiple on that on that EBITDA. And so all these companies were unbanked. Like no one was calling on them because no one realized how valuable they were. And I realized it because I, I was just curious. And so I started writing letters to the owners. Of like software companies? Or? Yeah, like little internet companies. I literally writing letters. This is how crazy this is. Like 2005. I basically got one of the MDs to let me write the letters under his name. So it like said it was coming from this guy, Eric, and not me. And we'd be like, hey, you may not know this, but like based on what we can see about your company, we think your company might be worth blah. You know, we'd love to come talk to you about your strategic options. And they would take the meeting. And then sometimes they would get, they would hire us to sell their companies. And so even though I couldn't do 
I was terrible at the stuff that you do as a junior investment banker, like the accounting, financial modeling stuff. There were typos in my PowerPoints. Like I was a disaster at that. But it turns out that if you're if you can get senior people meetings that result directly in revenue, that's all they really care about. Like you can hire people to really do the lesson. accounting bullshit. What you can't do is you can't find people who know how to make the cash register ring. And so I had a couple of years of that. And then what happened is that um, <laughs> my bonus demands became uh, increasingly outrageous. <laughs> and they had like a, because I was sitting there and going like, if I'm going to be involved in revenue generation here, you can't pay me, you know, a 40K bonus. Like that is it like on a- like how on much a, was a deal you did, for example? Like we, I helped bring in, and I, I do not want to take full credit for this at all. Like it was part, I was part of a team, but I helped bring in a deal one year where, so this is a tiny bank, right? This is like a, it's just tiny little M&A boutique. And maybe that year, the entire revenue of the company was like 10 million pounds. And I helped bring in a deal that year that I think did like six or seven of the 10. And they were like, okay, here's like a 40 grand bonus. And I was just like, all right, guys, like, come on. Like, you know, and their perspective on it, understandably, was like, look, we're not going to break our whole salary structure and pay some little like shithead a huge, like, you don't have a family. You know, we have people, senior people who, who do have families. And, and, and so that did not sit well with me at that time. I wasn't going to sit around and get paid very little, you know, a tiny fraction of, of what I was bringing in. So uh, anyway, so I basically made aggressive bonus demands. They were like, please reconsider. And I was like, no, I'm, you know, if you don't pay me, I'm going to leave. And then they didn't. And then I left. Six months later, they asked me to come back. So I kind of like felt good about it. But at that point, I was always, I was already intending to come back to the States. So, um, so yeah, I didn't take them up on it. Quick intermission yeah, question sure. around that is, like, how do you think your names impacted your life? It's a really good question. Um, That's what I do here, by the way, Moses. You you answer them, and I just ask. <laughs> no, but you uh, you're clearly good at it. No, I'm okay. Uh, no, I'm pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, you know, it's funny when I was applying to Princeton. This is going to be hard for people to believe. So this is like two. This is like a 1998. Princeton was under fire because it had the lowest percentage of Jews in its school in the Ivy League. <laughs> Okay. And I, it's comical to think about because I think like, I think the percentage of Jews in like the freshman class was like 12% and people were like outraged. And it was like- Oh, I thought well, it was going to be like point something percent. No, exactly. It's like, and then what are Jews in the population? It's like, I don't know, 1% or 0.1%. two, yeah, something, something crazy like that. So it's like, it's comical, but Princeton was getting a hard time about how they weren't letting in enough Jews. So my mother's line was always that like, they saw a kid coming from Andover who had, you know, so- Good grades. I had been the captain of my or the co-captain of my high school wrestling team, you know, uh, model UN newspaper. Like I had a you know well-rounded background, athlete, whatever. And Moses Kagan, like could God, like, could not be cl more clearly Jewish. So my mother's line was like that. That was like that people would remember probably remembered your name, knew you were Jewish, and that probably helped you get into Princeton, which obviously opened a lot of doors for me and everything during my life. So that probably the first thing I think of when you ask me that question is is that the other thing. This is going to start to digress, and now we're going to get a little darker. My father's father was named Moshe, which is Moses. Oh, I didn't know that. And Moshe, right? Yeah. yeah. Huh. He's a Holocaust survivor, barely. He and my grandmother got pregnant with my dad. They survived the war. And then when the war ended in Europe, refugee camps were set up in Germany for all these Jews who had been hiding in the woods to come to. And they hired a farmer with a truck, them and some other people, to drive them from wherever they were hiding out in the woods to this refugee camp. 
And my grandmother, I think, was already pregnant with my dad, and they were all starving. So my grandfather and this other guy went into a market town along the way to go try to buy food. And uh, the townspeople beat the shit out of them. And so he made it back onto the truck. I don't know how. And um, got to the refugee camp. My father was born. But my grandfather, Moshe, was in hospital, kidney failure from the beating that he had received. They eventually made it to Israel about five years later, but he was in the hospital there and he died when my dad was really young. From the attack. From the attack. Yeah. He was basically never the same. I mean, they didn't have, I don't think they had kidney transplants. I don't even know if they had dialysis back then. They certainly didn't have it in Israel. And so anyway, so he didn't really know his father. I mean, he, his, he has some memories of his father, but not a lot of them. And uh, anyway, so I'm named for his father. So I kind of always felt like, uh, I feel deeply connected to that family history as a result of my name. P.S. When I was in Israel the first time, we went to the uh, cemetery in Petah Tikva where he's buried. It says on this gravestone Moshe Kagan in Hebrew, which I can read, and it's just like that's a that blows your mind. Like your name, yeah, my name, me, not you, but, but yeah, yeah, on a gravestone in in, in Israel. Yeah. Do you know where in Petah Tikva? Is it where? behind a soccer field? I don't know. I don't. I actually don't remember where it was. Okay, because my dad's buried out in Petah Tikva, really? or near Ranana, which is like close by. And it's out in like, do you remember if it's in a field? I don't remember at all. Oh, I mean, I remember dr- being driven there, but yeah, but I don't, I don't remember that. Yeah. And then how did, how did you say your grandpa barely survived the Holocaust? Do you know? That? Well, he was, so my grandmother was a nurse in the partisans and the resistance. My grandfather, I think he was sent by the Russians to Siberia and basically was like in one of these like work camps in the, sur- survived the war in like a work camp in Siberia. Pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, these are, yeah, these are crazy stories. Man, that's wild. And then your mom wanted something to commemorate her her dad or your dad's dad? That's my dad's dad. Yeah. Actually, my son, my 17-month-old son, Leonard, is named after my mom's dad, too. I have a real sense. I feel extraordinarily connected to my family history, and I do every single thing I possibly can to try to make my children feel connected to that same legacy. Like I don't, I do not think of myself, nor do I think anyone should think of themselves as sort of like a free agent. Like I think that we I think that we owe something to the people who came before us mm-hmm. and to the people who came after us. Yeah. Uh and I try to live my life like that. Oh, that's beautiful. I was reflecting on that today and I felt not guilty, conflicted a little bit. Like I'm I'm Jewish as well like you. And you know, in our religion, our culture, the, the Jewish woman is the one that passes the the Jewish gene right. down. Yep. And so I've never really dated or been with a Jewish woman. And so I'm like, well, I probably should do that, keep my lineage. But I'm also attracted to other types of women, and, that, and there's a lot of many great women out there. I used to have some of that, and then my first wife converted to Judaism. My second wife, uh, she is a Jewish mother, so like we're technically, you know, she's technically Jewish according to the rabbis or whatever. But I don't, I don't know. My brother, uh, they're they're not married, but my my brother's partner is uh, she's she's French Moroccan, right? Like she's Muslim, like, and she is a wonderful, amazing person, and so. I think my parents in particular had a little had some hangups about that. They had some t- hangups about I shouldn't say about my brother's partner but just about us in general marrying Jewish women. But I think as time has passed, they and we have realized that that's not really necessarily what it's about. Like it's about family and and whether and like what I don't know what religion people are, I think matters less than like what kind of people they are, I guess. Yeah. 
I went on a date last weekend with a Jewish woman and my mom was texting me like every hour. She's like, <laughs> what do you think? You like her? She's nice. She's sweet. How's her? How's, how's she re- respectful? And just like all weekend. And then she texted me today even, how'd it go? You still talking to her? And I was like, uh, and, but it was actually sad about two weeks ago on a YouTube. I do YouTube office hours every Friday. And my mom, someone asked, she cut, my mom likes calling in on Fridays. Mm-hmm. That's her new thing. Oh, I want to talk to the audience. Well, get your own show then. And she, they said, oh, what do you, who do you think Noah should marry? Or who do you think Noah should be with? And she's like, I just want him to have someone. Like, I, I think she just felt like he's getting older and he just needs someone to take care of the schlep, you know, <laughs> this guy's stuff. And that was a little sad. And I, you know, there's a lot of, there's many women in, you know, out there for me, but it was interesting to kind of reflect on which kind of woman. And I definitely, yeah, I've gone yeah. back and forth over the years on that. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know. I'm not like, uh, you know, I, I probably should have prefaced this whole conversation, like taking advice on matrimony from uh, divorced people is maybe like, like it should come with a warning label. I anyway. think it's actually a good thing. Oh yeah. No, I think probably... I would actually argue the opposite. I, I mean, I really appreciated your perspective on lineage and then, you know, maturity but to find someone. Tucker Max uh, said something a long time to me. He's like, you got to find someone going in the same trajectory at a similar rate to you in these partner selections. I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting way of like uh, framing. That it. is an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, Simran and I, have, I think have different ambition levels. So we're not on the same trajectory from a career perspective. I think it literally might be impossible to find someone who is more, who is better suited to me. Yeah. I hope that I'm well suited to her. <laughs> Do you, how would you think she'll rate you? I don't know. That's actually an interesting question. I mean, I think she's basically a more tolerant person than I am. So like it's easy. Uh, it's easy to get along with a tolerant person, right? Like, like <laughs> I, I am the one who is difficult to get along with. She is easy to get along with. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, but I, you know, obviously there's some reason she married me. Yeah. How'd you meet her? Online. Her, uh, we were, um, I had a date. This is, I had a okay Cupid profile. Her friend found me and was like, okay, this guy went to Princeton. Uh, he's a real estate developer. He's from upstate New York. I have a friend who is from upstate New York, went to Princeton and is an interior designer. Like probably they should meet each other. Oh, so and, she saw you matched. Yeah. And so she reached out to me and was like, hey, I've got this friend who I think you, and blah, 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 made the match. Dude, hell yeah, man. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. Uh, we took her out to an extraordinarily fancy dinner when we got engaged. Nice. Which one? Uh, which restaurant? Yeah. Oh, uh, it, was, it was like Rosso Blue or something, downtown LA. It was like, nice. I just like went for it on the, on the wine. One thing coming to the real estate stuff, like what's the intro for you? In general, like professionally, like how how do you like describing yourself? What's the yeah? So um, I don't know about describing myself, but the business we're in. So we're we uh, I run with my partner a real estate private equity firm. It's called Adaptive Realty. It is a boutique in the sense that we're pretty small. Like so, we we manage we own with investors like about one hundred seventy five million dollars worth of real estate, which sounds like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, is actually not a lot at all. Really? Now in real estate, I mean. Random guys you've never heard of before in real estate own a billion dollars worth of assets. It's an insane business. It is, the, in my opinion, the best business in the world. We can talk more about oh, it. Oh, I want to hear that. Anyway, so we are we are a boutique real estate private equity firm. We raise money from investors. We buy apartment buildings in Los Angeles. They're sub-institutional scale apartment buildings, which means that they're the size of the buildings is so small that like Blackstone or whatever would not be- Like how many units is that? Well, it's better to think about it in terms of dollars. Um, so- We'll do projects anywhere from like three to ten million total capitalization, whereas like an institutional firm is not gonna. There's no chance in a million, like in a million years, that they would be interested in a five million dollar deal. It's just like not efficient for them from a capital deployment perspective. Yeah. So what that means is that we play in this weird sub institutional space where like 
the owners and the brokers are not necessarily as professional and organized as they are for the larger scale deals. Mm. And so you can't trust the information you get. Everything's there's all kinds of unpermitted construction, bad records, people lying to you. And it's this very like weird, murky world. But what's cool about that is that there's alpha there. There are super normal returns available if you know how to navigate that world. And we have renovated 100 buildings in Los Angeles over the last 12 years. And we have made every single mistake. I mean, I guess maybe we can probably still figure out new mistakes to make, but we've made most of them. And so we know how to navigate that murky, terrible world. And sort of like every once in a while, you know, it's basically you're like panning for gold in a sewer. It's disgusting. It's messy. You probably don't want to spend a lot of time doing it. But every once in a while, you're like, whoop, there's like a nugget of gold we'll pull out of there. And that's the business. Um, <laughs> that sounds real. So you're in the sewer. But you, I think that's interesting. You can get rich in sewers. I like that. Yeah, you don't look. I mean, what you're looking for is inefficient markets. I mean, I imagine, I don't, oh, yeah. I don't know, like oh, it's yeah. sort of like trading microcap stocks or probably like being an affiliate marketer or something. You're like looking for these weird, opaque little corners of the world where, where for whatever reason, whether it's barriers to entry or because the other market participants are not that sophisticated or not that well capitalized or whatever the reason, there's just like money being left on the table. And that's our business is to go find those situations and, and sort of unlock them. And I guess the final thing I would say in introduction to the business is most real estate private equity firms, the business model is you buy a building, you fix it up, you use as much debt as you possibly can, and then you flip the building, you sell it quickly. And that, that's because the sponsor, the guys, the men or women putting the deal together, don't generally get their money until they sell. Mm. So the business is like, buy, fix, sell, buy, fix, sell, buy, fix, sell. We buy, fix, refinance to return capital to our partners. And then we and our partners own the buildings forever. We do not sell. I haven't sold renovated buildings since 2014. And so that is a very unusual thing for real estate private equity. But it's like if you own these incredible assets in a market like Los Angeles, where there's not a lot of supply and there's a ton of jobs and people want to live there, it's like, don't sell that. Just like own it over time. Like you'll have good years and bad years, but over time, the rents and the values will grow and you'll be very happy to own that portfolio as you, uh, as you get older. Man, there's a lot in there. That sounds cool. So 175 million, that's obviously what people get their little boners about, or big boners about. <laughs> um, so I like that you said, it was really interesting. That's the most lucrative or one of the most lucrative businesses that people can go into. Because I remember like in high school or uh, even in college and afterwards, like I worked at Intel and mm-hmm. I would hear, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad books and read yep. real estate books. And I'm like, how do they do it? So maybe, maybe yeah. can you walk me through how you're approaching it in Austin? So you're here now, like, how do you guys look for these, these amazing opportunities? Yeah. So I'll go through the math in a second, but let me just say that the reason, fundamentally, the reason that it's a good business and arguably like the best business, look, the best business is starting Google, right? Okay. So if you, but if you're, if you're not going to start Google, right? The next, the reason I think real estate's so great is one, you can use other people's money. Like that's the most important thing. Like we have got to the point now in our deals where we don't have to put up any of our own money if we don't want to. We do because we like to get the returns. And we also, some of our investors prefer that we do, et cetera. But fundamentally, we don't have to, if we don't want to, put any money up. So we get to do, you could buy a $10 million thing and have ownership in it without putting up any of your own money. Like that is an amazing thing. The other thing to say is, and this is sort of a subset of that is, if you or I right now went to go buy a company, you know, a big company, 
And we were like, we'd like to borrow, uh, you know, 80% of the value of this asset or 75% to buy this thing. Can we have it? The bank would be like, are you crazy? Like they won't lend Blackstone 75% of the cost of buying a deal, right? Like they'd be like, you're out of your mind. It's over. Whereas banks will no problem allow you or me to sign on a loan to buy an apart- a $10 million apartment building. So interesting. Yeah. And uh, it has to do with the fact that... Um, you know they're relatively simple build, uh, businesses to run. There's hard assets like you know they, it's not it doesn't disappear if the owner goes away. If they have to yeah. foreclose, they, they still own a building and land. And so banks, because they know that they can take the building back from you if you don't pay the loan, are willing to loan to an individual to go buy the stuff. So to give you a sense, I think the last time I tra- I think that I have signed on something like seventy million dollars worth of loans, and like. You know, I have at this point I have a reasonable balance sheet, but I, it is nowhere near seventy million, not even close. And so, like, what other thing can you do where like a, a person can just like get their hands on that much other people's money to own cash flowing assets in good locations? I mean, that's just an insane thing. Anyway, that's why I describe it as the best business. Dude, that's wild. Yeah. So, how are you approaching it in Austin? Obviously, you don't want to give away. I don't know. What the, is there a secret sauce? Yeah, there, I mean, there's some, um, but I can tell you in general terms, I mean, we actually have like a very, very simple way of thinking about deals. Super simple. And it's so simple that people are going to be listening to this who know anything about real estate and be like, what are you talking about? So anyway, all we care about is what's called unlevered yield on cost. And that sounds unlevered fancy. Unlevered yield, yield on un- cost. And what that really means, okay, is assume you buy and renovate the building all cash, no debt. So like, a, like, like we do numbers like a million dollar building. Yeah, you buy. Let's say you okay. Let's say you buy a million dollar building. All cash. All cash, and you let's say you probably wouldn't do this, but let's say you then spent another two million dollars. Excuse me, another million dollars to renovate it. So you've invested two million dollars. Okay. So the question is, what can you expect from that two million dollar investment every year? That's it. So it's just like, how much rent can you get in the first year, and what are your operating expenses going to be? Okay. That's it. So imagine a fraction where uh, in the numerator, the top of the fraction, it's annual rent minus annual operating expenses. Net operating income is what we call it in real estate, but it's however you want to think about it. It's just is a that NOIC? NOIC is what? Uh, NOI, net, net operating income. And then it's just divided by your total investment in the building. What did it cost you to buy and renovate it? Outside of as cash only or how much cash, cash. you put in? You, no, yeah. Imagine you don't use debt. Like imagine you just like have two million dollars in your got bank it. account. So you just imagine you've paid for the whole thing in cash. In cash. Okay, got it. And we have different investors who have like sort of different return thresholds, but all we're doing is solving for can we find buildings that have like in Los Angeles, right now, we probably want a five and a half percent unlevered yield on cost. And that just means the annual net operating income divided by the amount that it's gonna cost to raise. So of a million dollar building, you want fifty thousand a year. 55,000, yeah. Oh, if it's five and a half. And then how does that compare to a cap rate? It effectively is a cap rate. Is it? It's just that a cap rate, a cap rate is like if you could buy that $55,000 with a million dollars, that's a five and a half cap. The reason I say unlevered yield on cost is because I want to emphasize that there's work being done. I can't go in Los Angeles right now and just go plunk down my money and buy a five and a half. What would you be able to get right a now? A four or like a three and a half in real life, probably. So our business is the reason we go through all this brain damage to renovate the building and it's like so super painful and know all the building codes and get yelling at contractors and and suppliers and all this and it getting yelled at by city inspectors and like just like all the nightmarish brain damage that goes around goes on when you try to do one of these projects. The reason we do that is because 
of that delta, the difference between what you can get by just buying a building, mm. three and a half or four percent, and what we can create by doing all that brain damage, which is like a five and a half or ideally a six. So a six percent return. Yeah. It gets a little bit more complicated after that because then what we do is go take a loan against the property. So the amount of cash that you're actually putting up is much lower. So you're Yeah, well we put up a bunch of cash in the beginning and then go get a loan and take most of the cash back out. But then you're still getting a higher return. Yeah, then you're I mean cash. Look, we can't do it right now because the number the way that the numbers have are working between the purchase prices and the rents and everything. But for a while there in LA, for years, we were able to buy a building, renovate it, go to a bank, get a loan and take all the money back out. Just because of the appreciation or because they were doing Yeah, because healthy. well, because it's the forced appreciation. Like when we were done with the building, like so, let's say we were in oh, the, the building for two million, the appraised value would be three, and the bank would be like, "Yeah, we'll happily make you a loan for two. And so you take the two, you give it back to the investors, and now you and the investors own a three million dollar building with no money in it. It's a perpetual motion machine. It's like an ATM that just spits out money every month. And we did a lot of those, and it's just that's an incredible, incredible business. If I'm eighteen and I didn't get rich on Dogecoin, uh, <laughs> and I and you know I want to get diamond hands on this shit, but I'm I'm curious to follow your footsteps, but I don't have the capital. Would is the approach to go get money from my parents and then go, or friends and family do that, or go apprentice for someone like yourself? There's a bunch of different ways that you can get. I would not recommend trying to do a deal yourself from like a standing start, although you can't. I mean, people do, and sometimes it works out. There's two different ways to do it. One is you can go get a job. You probably can't get a job at 18. You probably probably have to go to college to get this job, although not not necessarily. You go get a job as like an analyst at a real estate private equity firm. Those are people who get paid, you know, depends on the market, but like 50 grand a year, 60 grand a year. And their job is to go hunt down deals for their firm. The firm teaches you like what the firm's looking for. Like, this is the kind of deal that works. This This is our model, right? The firm teaches you the business. And then eventually you get enough confidence in yourself and other people get enough confidence in you that you'll be able to find your own deals and, and, and renovate them. Another way of doing it that requires even less permission from anyone else- I like that. Is you go be a broker. So anyone can, you can go get a license to be a real estate agent in Los Angeles for like, if in California for 200 bucks from uh, realestatelicense.com. They should be paying me for this. Um, <laughs> 200 bucks, you take three online courses and you, uh, so you take three online courses, you pass your test and then you're a broker or then you're an agent and then you go work for a brokerage and brokerages, they're not paying you a salary, right? You, you eat what you kill. They, they train you. There's not really that much permission required because they're like, they don't give a shit since they're not paying you. They're like if you have a pulse and you have a license, you're okay. You work for the brokerage, right? Uh, you might not make any money if you're bad. But what happens is if you're good and you hustle, you start to do deals. And when you're doing deals, when you're helping people buy and sell little apartment buildings, you are learning what a good deal is. And you're also meeting a ton of people who buy and sell apartment buildings, who are exactly the kind of people who would invest in apartment buildings if you found good ones to buy. Basically, those are the two good ways into the business. One is get a job at an existing firm. They teach you. Then you go off on your own. The other more like bootstrappy way of doing it is go be a broker, work for a couple of years, build up some trust with people, find a deal, syndicate it, and then you're away. That's interesting. For me, another version of that that's been surprising for me is like, what are you going to be really great at to make all your money? And for me, it's been tech. Like I was just born into tech. It was around it. And, and that's where I was like, oh, this is where my wealth is going to be created actively. But then passively, another alternative is find people in other via other mediums. So find the lawyers who work in real estate that can connect you to them. So for instance, I was living downtown in Austin. I was renting a parking spot. 
Okay. And I asked the guy, I was like, yo, you seem like, you, do you own some properties? Like, well, actually, like I run a real estate firm and I own three units here and we own like, I think they own, I don't know if it's 10,000 units or something, pretty significant amount. That's a lot. Yeah. And I was like, hold on, so can we have lunch? And he's like, now he won't have lunch with me. But he had <laughs> lunch with me then. And um, I was like, can you walk you through your model? He's like, yeah. And I, was, I said, well, can I give you money for your stuff? Yeah. And that was the way that I was able to start connecting. So I've probably put in like a quarter million with these guys and different, similar, same, same, but different, yeah. like similar model. They buy apartment buildings, renovate them in like lower income markets. And then I don't, I think they generally sell them yep. after between five and seven years. Yeah, but anyway, it was a connecting yep. way. That was interesting to be like, oh, if you rent from someone or the lawyers or accountants. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting things about the last couple of years has been that the traditional way that you used to find these people who did this stuff was like at the country club. Real estate guys notoriously lazy, making money from passive income, don't really have to be at a job at a particular time or whatever, hang out at the uh, country club, play golf. And the other rich guys or women who are there, like who also don't have to do anything are there too. And they all start talking and then they end up funding the real estate guys deals. That That's like the, that's the standard way that people raise money. I don't play golf and I'm not a country club guy to put it uh, mildly. So what has helped me over in my career is I actually basically like did content marketing. I came to Los Angeles without a big network at all. And I basically just started writing a blog about buying and renovating apartment buildings. And that brought in a whole bunch of investors mm. and also brokerage clients because I was brokering deals too. And then over the last couple of years, uh, I've got really active on Twitter. I've seen, well, that's how we met. Yeah, right. And through both of those media, we have met tons and tons of, uh, of investors. So anyway, so my point is like, it's a way for people who are, A, as an investor, that's a way to potentially find people with whom to do businesses. You can find them on the internet now and Twitter and other places. And as a sponsor, the person running a real estate private equity firm, that's a whole new way that you can go about cultivating a uh, following. It. You created your own country club. I did. And it's at scale. And I, you know, the blog was kind of like, let's call it the minor league version. Like I wrote every weekday for, I don't know, five or six years. But the the total readership was never re above like probably a few thousand-ish, 5,000. But when you're writing about such a niche topic that's so high value, each lead on that mailing list is incredibly likely to convert to someone who either like has you help them buy an apartment building, in which case like, you know, it's a $25,000, $50,000 commission to broker that deal. Or they come to you and say, hey, I want to put 100 grand or 500 grand or more into your deals. And obviously that's a lot more money. That's cool. And so walk me through what, what's going on in Austin. I mean, look, Austin, there's no secret about Austin. Like everyone knows that Austin's an awesome yeah. city. But I guess that's yeah. why I'm like, there's still opportunity. That's why I'm like, oh, there is? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, we're here in part to find out. It's not a secret that Austin's awesome and that lots of people are moving here and there are a lot of jobs here. And in particular, there's a lot of like super creative, interesting people who are going to start companies and have already started companies and fund companies and that kind of stuff that's going to go on here, which is cool. There's a kind of a vibrancy and obviously there's growth population-wise. And the city is seems, compared to Los Angeles, the city seems pretty open to, to allowing people to do stuff. Los Angeles is an incredibly hard place to do business. The answer is, I don't know if there's opportunity. I mean, there's the people who are already here doing business are highly sophisticated, smart, well-capitalized. So it's not like I'm coming in like, oh, there's a bunch of morons. Like these are, there's very, very, I mean, we're sitting in a building that's owned and managed by, or managed at least by CIM. Like that's a Los Angeles company. Those guys are 
the sharpest of the sharp. They're already here. They already, you know, so it's not like we're getting away with anything. So we're hopeful, though, that we will be able to see some opportunity and honestly don't know yet. Like, this is like literally the first first day that we're driving around. And are you looking at office buildings? You're looking at apartment complexes? Do you have specific areas? Only apartments. And honestly, you know, we're looking all over the city because we don't know yet. Like, there's the temptation to want to copy exactly what we've done in Los Angeles here. And that may or may not be the right thing to do. It is conceivable that our model, that copy and pasting is the right thing to do. But it's also possible that we should be building ground up or or buying low-income apartments or I, I don't know. And I think it's it's probably too early to say. But to answer the second part of your question, we, we only do apartment buildings. So we don't... Um, I would love for sort of intellectual curiosity and sort of maybe vanity reasons to to go do an office building or a shopping center or something. I have researched those things to a very great extent, and it is not clear to me why anyone would prefer to do those kind of deals over apartments. It's just apartments, in my opinion, are just a better business. Why is that? Because like, I would tell you in this office building, I hate CIM. I think they're a piece of shit. I'll say that straight to their face. I think they're rude. I don't think they give a crap about their tenants. And the way that the structure of uh-huh. deals in corporate office buildings is atrocious. So yeah. we pay the mortgage. We pay the property tax. We, yeah. I'm like, what the F did you pay for? We uh, had to pay for the build out. No, it's true. Uh, so I'm like, on, but as an apartment building, you're responsible for everything. You pay everything the, the individual does. The big difference with, an, with, with office is that, um, and retail's like this too, also, with apartments, like, if you're in a place like Los Angeles or Austin, like, your apartment's going to rent. As long as your mar- apartment is habitable and as long as you price it fairly based on the comparable whatever else is on the market, your apartment will rent. With offices, you can run into situations where you have vacancy, like you have half a building vacant. Like this, va- this building is very empty. So not only is the owner not receiving income from that half the building or whatever that's empty, when the next tenant comes in, the tenant's not going to just like move right in. The tenant's going to be like, I would like you to provide me a million dollars worth of the worth of tenant improvements to build out the kind of office that I want to be in. And so as an office building owner, like you want to rent your unit, like, okay, you're going to spend a million bucks. So it's like, whereas with apartments, you don't go into an apartment and be like, I'm thinking about renting this, but I'm going to need you to spend a million dollars, like changing the tile. And then no, it's like, you get the apartment you get, right? So those businesses just tend as a long-term holder, uh, office buildings in particular, retails a little bit like this too, are just like you're dealing with vacancy and you're dealing with like a lot of CapEx, just like a ton of having to put money back into the building mm. to attract tenants. The game with those buildings is very different. Ideally, you buy them counter-cyclically. So you buy them when prices are down. You spend that CapEx to fix them up and get tenants in there, like ideally like high quality tenants with good credit ratings. And then you immediately sell the building. And that's a good business. People have made a Blackstone's done that. Like people have made a lot of money doing that. But that's not the same as like being a long term holder. Like you're just like you want that asset off your hands as quickly as you can. Uh, and that's just not the kind of business we want to be in right now. And so, do you guys make up the revenue numbers, or do you ask the current owners? Do you look for on market stuff. Do you look for brokered stuff? Do you look for off market like LoopNet? Like in LA, we look everywhere. Um, you, you, we find plenty of stuff on market. So here's the thing. If you want to do one deal, you can like wait until you find that like needle in a haystack deal that's like that you're stealing. Okay. We've stolen some buildings. Like by stealing, I mean like someone comes to you and says a price that's just like 
obviously ridiculously cheap and you immediately buy it. And no, they didn't. If they had put it on the market, it would have got bid up to what it should have been. And so that's what I mean by stealing. Like you're just buying something for way less than it's worth, obviously. And we've done that some. some. The problem is that that is not a way to build a sustainable business because you can't like rely on regularly stealing buildings. So what do you do? The answer is that you need to construct what I call, or I'm following on from a real estate guy, uh, Francis Greenberger, who's just like an absolute genius, a differentiated lens. And what we mean by differentiated lens is a different way of looking at the world, specifically a different way of looking at assets, such that you can see an asset that everyone else can see, and you have a way of looking at that asset that generates more return than everyone else does. And once you have a differentiated lens, you're like a kid in a candy store because like, you could just buy stuff that's on the market. Greenberger, who's a billionaire now, his lens was in New York City a long time, like 40 years ago, more, 50 years ago, there were all these shitty apartment buildings. He realized that you could turn them into co-ops. Like you could buy the buildings at a price that reflected the shitty low rents, fix them up a little bit, and sell the, t- the apartments to either to the current occupants or to new occupants. And so he describes the situation where he would like look, he could buy any building. Like because other people hadn't caught on yet, he had his pick, like any building on the market he could buy. And, and it was just like, it was like between picking between the one that he was only going to make 50% on his money in like a year or whether he was going to make 100% on his money. It just like, and it was because he had a differentiated lens. So we don't have a differentiated lens that's quite as, as exciting as, as Greenberger's, but we have a differentiated lens when it comes to apartment buildings. And so we are frequently able to buy stuff that other people can also see. Like it's just right there. Like other people could bid on it and, uh, and sometimes they do and we can't buy it. But um, we are frequently able to buy buildings that other people could also buy. We can, in other words, we can win an auction and turn it into something that other people can't see. After we're done, they look at the pictures and they're like, that's awesome. But they don't, they just don't look at it the way that we do. What are you guys saying? It's a real, it's a lot of different things. In real estate, sometimes every once in a while, you might be like Greenberger and have like one insight that makes you 100% better than everyone else. That's not usually the way the world works. Usually the way the world works in our, in our business is that like, there are 50 different things that go along, that go on when you do a building. There's like acquisitions and, um, and design and contractor selection and construction oversight and um, leasing and management and financing. You could break all those down into a bunch of other things too. We try to be like, you know, 10% better at each of those things than the people with whom we compete. So we're not, there's no one insight where you're like, aha. Because if there's just one insight, then other people just copy it, right? Like eventually, even stupid real estate people like us will catch on and copy. But um, it's the accumulation of small amounts of edge across the entire value chain that, when taken together, represent a, a fundamental difference. So one thing you said earlier that I wanted to revisit is I like that you bought, you've only bought in six areas in LA. I love the focus and the concentration. And so in Austin, are you comparing it based on that? calculation, like the net of our income. Yeah. The, yeah. And then just comparing like, because I think I like about that or IR or some of these metrics, you're like, it's kind of makes equivalent judgments. We will use the same math in Austin 
I don't know the numbers here well enough to know yet whether the numbers will be as good, better, or worse than they are in LA. There's like a secondary reason for being in Austin, or and this isn't just Austin. It's like we also we were in Phoenix like a couple months ago, and we probably will visit a whole bunch of other cities too. I happen to like Austin a lot because like like aesthetically, it's just like a cool place, and like that would be awesome if I could spend some time here every year. Like that that'd be cool. But there's a kind of a diversification element too. Like some of our investors are like massively over-indexed in California real estate, like massively. Like, you know, they own a billion dollars worth of assets and like all but 50 million of them are in California. And like California's politics have tilted pretty far left. Yes. And show no signs of going in any kind of more saner direction. And so imagine you like you have these like serious long, long duration assets that you've had in your family for a long time. And like, you might be tempted to be like, I do not want to have like 95% of my net worth subject to the people in Sacramento. So there's some value in diversifying, even if like, even if the numbers are worse in Austin or wherever else we end up, there's some value for our investors in just diversification. Yeah. What kind of house do you live in? Kind of house do I live in? Yeah. Um, I live in a old house. Uh, I live in a, it's kind of funny because I actually don't think these areas should exist. <laughs> um, I live in uh like in a neighborhood called Los Feliz, just just I on the very, very western edge of Los Feliz. Um, so it's like the northeast corner of Hollywood, like right at the base of the hills. Actually, my street, like my block is where it starts sloping up to go into the hills. Um, so it's walkable. So I can like I can like walk to all like all kinds of awesome, mostly Thai restaurants and like it's a walkable urban area, but my street is in a historic preservation zone. So all the houses were sort of built in the 20s and you're not allowed to rip them down. And uh, so people have, for the most part, done like these really interesting and nice renovations, like very historically sensitive renovations. And so it's like beautiful, quiet street that almost feels like suburban. Uh, it's actually a dead end, a couple of blocks. Like, so it's a dead end street. It feels like almost suburban with these beautiful old 20s houses, but you can like walk into Hollywood and go to yeah. bars and whatever. So that's like a cool, anyway, that, that's, so yeah, that's right. How'd you evaluate that financial decision? Did you approach <laughs> it from the same lens? Because I think that's where I've struggled where, I think with real estate in general for myself, like probably about six years ago at AppSumo, the company was doing relatively well. And I was spending probably like two to three hours a day looking at houses to buy for Airbnb. It was just when Airbnb yeah. started. Yep. So I was like, if I buy anything, there's a different lens. I can throw yep. these Airbnbs in. And I was spending a lot of time doing it. But then at the end of the day, the math, I, I said, all right, at the end of the year, I can make $10,000 profit. Maybe there's an appreciation game, but I'm, I'm strictly yeah. cash flow. I was like, we can make $10,000 in a day at AppSumo. Yep. And so I don't really have an advantage here. And yep. it's, you know, everyone can compete in it. And I, so I guess that was one point to your earlier stuff. And then also... When you're trying to buy a house for yourself, you're like, well, you know, my cap rate isn't as good as like buying a building. Though. I don't think that your house should be primarily viewed as an investment. I actually, ideally, you wouldn't view it as an investment at all. Ironically, my house is probably my best investment that I own right now just because of what's been going on with residential real estate. I mean, it's just like, I guess Austin's even worse than it is in LA, but like it's been going up 15%, 20%. I mean, it's just going, it's insane. So actually, our house turns out to have been a pretty good investment, but prep no. But I don't think that you should think about houses like that. I think it's it's a consumption decision. Uh, so we bought an old house that was in really rough shape. The owners had owned it since I think the sixties. Oh wow! And it was like it was this is the house you're in now. Yeah, it was not good, and we gutted it. And my my wife's a designer. I mean, we happen to have similar taste. I guess maybe that's part of the reason we got married. She has great taste, and it was so awesome for me because I mean we both contributed money. But she did all the work, 
And so I just got to live in this friggin' awesome house that I didn't have to do. Unlike all the other buildings I've ever been involved with, I basically had to do nothing. Like I just signed my share of the checks. And, uh, and, and, you know, I took, I can't remember how long, maybe it took six months or something like that. But now I come home to a house that I love. And um, there are massive psychic benefits to living in a place that you're really happy about that you can't put in a spreadsheet or anything. Dude. I was literally having this talk in the drive here. So I just bought a new house here. In, well, I bought it in January, but I just moved into it three weeks ago. Mazel tov. Thank you, man. Thank you for the mazel. I love some mazels. And uh, I've never had a nice house. And this house is nice. This is like, yo, like you will come in like, you know. Yeah. I'm happy for you. That's awesome. That's Dude, a great feeling. I hope everyone can get that chance in their lifetime. Because like, I grew up fine, like 1400 square foot California house. It was fine, but I couldn't really, my parents were just strict. And then like, I always lived in kind of like crappy places. And then finally at almost 40, I'm like, let's just try this out. And honestly, Joe, I will say like life is significantly better. Like it's just, you have space. I have like windows. I have walls that don't have cracks in them. (laughs) I don't have like a bunch of bugs running around all this stuff. And it's kind of like, it does elevate your game a bit. I don't, I'm not into Ferraris or, you know, fancy shit like that. But I was like, man, having this kind of nicer house, like definitely makes me elevate my work, elevate who I feel as a person. And maybe it'll come down in a few months, but I still think there's a net benefit that. No, I think it, I mean, look, yeah, obviously there's, uh, you know, there's the hedonic treadmill, right? Like, so yeah. eventually you just get used to it. Who but... wrote that shit, man? <laughs> that guy probably didn't even work out or that woman didn't work out for shit. But I, do, I, I think that even, um, even though you do get used to it, I don't, whatever, I've been in my house for a couple of years now. I haven't got used to it. Like, I mean, I, I'm used to it, but it still makes me happy every day. And, uh, like and that's that. a good feeling. And, it, and and for me too, this is the first like nice house that I've ever really lived Dude, it's, in. I don't, I don't think I could ever go back. It's funny. My friend was saying you should go live at your old house. So I went to my old house today's Wednesday. I went to my old house Monday. I felt a little sad for myself. Like, man, I, I don't know why you do this to yourself. Like, you didn't need to, <laughs> you could afford it a nicer thing. And, but it was also a nice, like, Hey, do you want to come back to this? It's like, no, 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 please. God, yeah. not, not, not lifestyle. not about like lifestyle inflation. It's just, you know, there are things you can do for yourself in life. Like it doesn't have to be that expensive. That can produce like significantly more enjoyable life. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's true. Look, I I did with my first wife. I did we did the financially responsible thing, which is at the irresponsible. Time. No, responsible. Oh, man, I thought which you were is, not, I no, love a responsible story. No, we we um, well it may have been irresponsible. You'll see in a second why. Rather than buying a house, this is like in twenty, I think like 2010, 20, maybe twenty eleven. We bought a fourplex in a not very nice neighborhood. Uh, in LA, LA. Yeah. like which and range? Which broadly speaking, it's mid city. So oh, mid city. Yeah, mid city is good now. Now it is. Oh, wasn't it good in 2010. No, um, well, is- It's not fair. I mean, I shouldn't say it's bad. Like it, the people who owned their homes there were like to, in general to take very good care of them. So it's, and there's actually a very nice neighborhood feel to it. Like I actually was on this, the neighborhood council briefly. There actually is this like amazing backbone of like longtime homeowners yeah. that take care of the place, keep an eye on things. So Anyways, that part's cool, but the commercial in particular, like it's a lot of liquor, or it's got better now, but it was a lot of like liquor stores and like very very cheap motels that probably you could rent by the hour if you ask. Halfway houses. It was just like a oh, the commercial areas were a mess, and so we bought this building and we moved in to the upstairs. It was the right thing to do from a finance perspective. Uh, like a great deal in retrospect. My ex-wife owns it now. We manage it for her. Um, but it was just horrible from a lifestyle, from a, like a feeling perspective. Like just coming home to a place where that you're not happy about 
where the drive home it's gross and the apartment itself is gross and you're just like reminded all the time that you're just in this like gross environment is not good for anyone. It's just like I that certainly wasn't the reason that we got divorced or something, but it was it was certainly wasn't good for me. I imagine it wasn't good for her either. It was just like it was just it's just really tough. So so we made we made I did the thing where you like make your where you live fundamentally a financial calculus. Like, you know, do the smart thing financially. And it it ended up making my life terrible. You know, obviously you have to do what you have to do. And particularly when you're starting out, you know, you don't have a choice necessarily. But I I think that there are enormous benefits that you should not discount to living somewhere that you really enjoy. Yeah, man. I mean, we we live a brief existence, relatively. It's like pretty quick, man. Like you're in your 40s? 40, 41, yeah. 41, yeah. I'm 39. I'm like, it is, it's it's chopping, man. I'm like, half half, over. last half full on this one. (laughs) But still, and then it's too short to, if you can afford certain, I guess, I, I don't know if it's a Jewish neuroticism, but I think I got conditioned that like, you can't have nice things and like materialism isn't going to bring you happy. It definitely makes it easier. And it's like, if you yeah. can do it or you can work towards it. And like, you know, I did it, I think pretty responsibly. I lived pretty much cheap until almost 40. Yep. And then it, I think the actual hard part to, is, is on the other side of that. Like if you've lived cheap for so long, getting out of that is the <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah, no, it's uh, true. But I think, look, like you said, I mean, you work hard in your job, you you create value for other people. I mean, fundamentally capitalism, right? Like consumer surplus. By definition, any company that exists is generating more value for, or generating a whole bunch of value that it doesn't capture, right? That's like, that's like when we do an exchange, you're happy with the exchange. That means you got more value than what you paid me for the thing. Hmm. Like that's fundamental to like, no, that's no. what, yeah, it's consumer surplus. Like if we do a free exchange, by definition, we're both happier because we wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. So if you're a company that, for, and whatever you do, and uh, you know whether it's something simple like, I don't know, make and sell bikes or whether it's more complicated, fundamentally, like you are creating a whole bunch of value that you are not capturing. And uh, that's a good thing. The people who work for you work for you because that's the thing that was the best job for them. Like They had a certain amount of time to trade and they, that was the best trade that they could find. As long as it's all freely, it's contracts that are freely entered into, everyone's happy on some level, or at least satisfied, or however you want to think about it. So great. So you created this thing that where everyone's winning on some level, and you're getting to win, which is an amazing thing. That's like, I mean, it's, I'm a capitalist to my core for this reason. And so you do that, and you ought to be able to then enjoy the fruits of that without, you know, without feeling bad about it. Like you are, you're creating a fuckload of value for the world, and you should be able to capture some of that. Yeah, I've been fascinated with people's money relationships. That's a function of childhood, net worth, income, surroundings. There's, there's a lot to it, and it's, it's complex for a lot of different people. Can you describe like your re- most recent deal? I'm sure people ask you, "What's your craziest deal?" I'm just curious, like, what's most recent? Like, what'd you find? What'd it look like? The most recent one is, um, yeah, so we just bought this building last week, I think. Rough area? Which um, area? It's Not it, rough the area, but which area? Huh. Um, that one is, actually, that's Mid-City, too. And that actually happens to be in an opportunity zone. And the capital for that deal came from uh, some venture capitalists who, with whom we have what's called a programmatic joint venture, where they allocated a certain amount of capital to us, and we're doing, I think this is the fourth deal in that with that pool of money. So it's a vacant building that we bought, like just in in some ways, like a complete disaster. Like it needs, part of it doesn't have a foundation and hasn't for God knows how long. Nothing about it's good, except it's in a location, it's in a good location. How'd you find that? 
that one was on market and we went and contract on it. We, we sort of won an auction to buy it. We inspected it. We were like, this does not have a foundation. Like we cannot pay the price that we, well, we, uh, that we had, uh, agreed. So we backed out. They went, they tried to sell it to someone else. Same thing happened. And then, uh, they came back to us and they were like, Hey, you know, we said, look, we'd love to buy the building. We just need the price to reflect the fact that we're going to have to spend a lot more money basically rebuilding a foundation that doesn't exist. So they tried to sell it to some other people and then realized that actually we were right. And like what we were asking was not unfair. So they came back and we made a deal at a price that reflected the additional cost. We are currently just, my partner does all the design and construction management. So whenever we buy a building, we have a view about what we're going to do with it. And that's how you get to that unlevered yield number. Like we estimate, okay, we're going to make these kind of apartments. Here's the rent we're going to get. Here's how much it's going to cost. Here's how much it's going to cost to actually do the renovation to get those apartments. Okay. When we do that, we don't necessarily have the optimal solution at the time that we buy the building. We have a solution. So by solution, I mean we have a game plan that will get us to the unlevered yield, above the unlevered yield threshold that we were looking for. But then what happens is my partner starts to actually work on it and like play with different designs. And frequently what will happen is we will hit upon a solution that's better than the one that we had in mind when we bought the building. Hmm. So we are currently in that process right now where he's playing with designs to kind of like try to optimize. Once he does that, the next step is taking it through the city, like getting them to sign off. And that's like a multi-month long process of getting various clearances and engineering and all kinds of other nonsense. And then when we get those permits, then we probably have like a nine to 12 month construction process. And then we got to lease it up. This is apartment buildings. Yeah, this is. Yeah, exactly. But it wasn't being used? The guys we bought it from bought it, I think, with some vacancy and then some of the other tenants moved out. So that by the time that we were, I mean, this building is a dump. Like you would not, it is arguably not safe for anyone to be living. I mean, a building without a foundation in an area that's prone to earthquakes is not a good look. Uh, so when we bought it, it was vacant. The deal is not going to blow anyone's hair back from a numbers perspective. It's pretty good, but it's opportunities on money. So there's some tax benefits to the investors of having done it. And when we're done in, I don't know, it'll be leased up in 14 months or take your pick. I don't know. We will, hopefully interest rates will be reasonable. We will go refinance Actually, I guess on an opportunity zone, it takes two years. So two years, we will refinance, return a bunch of money to our investor, and then we and our investor will just own that building forever. What are some of the war stories? (laughs) How much time you got? (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, the first building we ever bought, we rented to a woman. I've told this story before. Rented a woman who we thought was just like a single woman, and she turned out to have a boyfriend, which like, okay. And the boyfriend was a pimp who was running prostitutes out of the apartment while she, the girlfriend, was at work. So that was like the first- and she building. didn't know? Who knows? I don't know. Okay. I mean, so that was like the literally the first building I ever bought. It was my brother. So we had to ask them very politely to leave the building. I'm going to go through several of these. Bought a building where um, one of the tenants had very recently gone to jail for att- attempting to attack another tenant with an ax. These buildings had security doors like um, left over from the 80s, like these like wire mesh, like steel mesh security doors. And there was a fucking like axe gash <laughs> like in the metal security door where the guy had taken a fire axe or something. And, and like, so he went to jail. And then when he got out of jail, 
I had to go meet with him and be like, listen, obviously, like, you can't live here. And the guy, it was super funny. Like, I hired armed guards to come with me to do that negotiation because I was worried he was going to attack me. Guy couldn't have been nicer, offered me to like get high with him. I was like, you know, <laughs> for while we were negotiating, like, no, thank you. Uh, but we ended up, yeah, we ended up like getting him a hotel room for a month and like giving him cash and he moved Why? out. Well, because he- uh, Did he lose his lease when you try to kill your- Dude, Los Angeles is crazy. Like even if we could have gone through eviction on that, we would have won, but it would have probably would have taken like five months or something. And meanwhile, we got an ax attacker, like living in a building with other people. So we ended up, yeah, we went in an apartment for a, a hotel room for a month and a bunch of money and he moved out. I had another situation like that, different building, made a deal with this gangster to move out. You know, we made the deal, but then he was supposed to move out. But in the meantime, he got arrested for threatening another one of his neighbors at the same, in a different building. So he goes to jail and we're like, so the move out day comes, he's supposed to move out and he's in jail. So we move his stuff to storage. And then he gets out of jail like a few months later and like basically knocks on our door being like, uh, where's my stuff? Can I have the rest of my money? And it's like, this is a scary dude. And then, but it worked out fine. Like gave him his money, gave him the keys to his storage. Like, I mean, this is, I got a million more of these stories. The point is that our business is not fundamentally like about being as like spreadsheet jockey. The math that we do on these things, it's fourth grade math. That's not the hard part. The hard part is you're buying a fucked up thing, sometimes with some very rough people in it, and you're trying to transform it into something else. And you have all these forces sort of working against you from the city to interest rates to rental market, whatever. You, you're, and what you're doing is trying to use your willpower and your creativity and your intelligence and all that stuff to rearrange the world in a way that is profitable for you and your partners. And it is uh, by turns infuriating and difficult but also, you know, obviously incredibly amazing when you see one of these projects come to fruition. One thing that I struggled with in the real estate stuff specifically is I, I, I kind of debated whether it's like, how much is this adding to society? Right. And like, what, what's our fucking responsibility? I don't have that shit. <laughs> I don't have to do nothing. I could literally just like jerk off, smoke weed, eat cereal and call it a day. But I know with real estate for me, a lot of the time I was like, what am I really adding here? Right. And the guy yeah. who I actually invest with, at the end of the day, they have kind of crappy build. They're not super crappy, but that's like class C or something like that. Older buildings, refresh, raise rents, kick out the people that can't afford it and bring in new people. And it's fine. It makes money. But it's like, is that really doing that good? And he, I'm sure his argument would be, well, like now it's a nicer building. Now people can afford it. Those people can go to something you know cheaper that they can afford. I guess that's where I've just kind of like debated this type of work potentially. Yeah. Even I, as an investment, yeah. I'm like, I don't know if that's where I should be. That is a very fair critique. And I'm not hating on you, by the way. No, no, like no, 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 no. It's a, no, it's a very fair critique. I, I don't take this personally. I think about this all the time. Where I have settled is that our particular business is, I think, net positive from a social perspective, but I think it's debatable. A couple things to say. One is Los Angeles is rent controlled, and that means you can't just kick people out. You don't get to just go there and be like, hey, get the hell out of my building. Like You got to pay them, and it's voluntary. So when people move out, it's because they got paid a lot of money. Um, that's the first thing to say. Second thing to say is Los Angeles, the housing stock, a lot of it was built in the 20s. Okay, mm. So we're coming into 100 years old now. And um, those buildings need everything. They need new plumbing, electric, windows, roof. Okay. So when we buy these things, we're not just like, you know, changing the countertops and painting the, you know, the 
the cabinets and raising the rents by 50 bucks or 200 bucks or whatever. We are gutting them to the studs and making them safe places for people to live in, uh, you know, for the next hundred years. Let me tell you a story. Los Angeles has water stores. A water store is like a retail establishment, like a store, okay, that sells clean water. Okay. And the way it works is you go there with your like water bubbler tanks and you pay them, I don't know what it is, like five bucks or whatever to fill up a jug of clean water. Yeah, I've seen that. Okay. Why does that exist in Los Angeles? Like, well, the reason that that exists in Los Angeles, and then so is because you have these hundred year old buildings that are full of tenants. They have piping that's a hundred years old. The water that comes out of the taps in those apartments is fucking brown because of the way that rent control works. And there's various formulas that kind of govern how you can get a return on your investment for fixing an older building that you own. It is not in the interest of any of the owners to fix that piping. And so these people have to drive to a water store like they're in like an African village going to a local well or something like that. And that's like fundamentally not, that's an insane thing to be going on in the second largest city in America. And it's because you have this housing stock that is really old and dilapidated and not going to be taken care of. And we are the people who go in and fix that. Final thought uh, I'd love your opinion on. I have $100,000 cash. Now, is it Good better? For you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, it wasn't a brag. It was no, no. Saying, I'm I'm it's more of a hypothetical. Yeah. I have a lot more than that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm, no, I'm not kidding. Uh, that just, it was like douchey, but then not douchey. <laughs> I don't know. Kept I put going, you but, in a bad position. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's fine. So I guess what I'm curious though is that if I had a hundred thousand dollars, do I give it to you? Do I give it to whatever real estate? Do I put it in crypto? Do I put it in the stock market? Do I put it in my company? I guess how do you approach that? So let's say you get you know a hundred thousand a month cash flow from your buildings for yourself. Now do you think hey I want to take this and diversify into index funds or do you think I guess that, that's yeah, my mind. Yeah, you're thinking okay. So so I used to think when I started out in this business that I had to answer that question and I don't actually now. You don't um, answer shit. So well no, I mean I think my point is that when I first started, I used to think that my job was to go to rich people and explain to them why they should invest in my apartment building deals instead of putting money in the S&P or like crypto or any one of a million other things that you could do with money. It turns out that that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to provide exposure currently to Los Angeles, maybe it'll be Austin, whatever, but currently to Los Angeles multifamily in the smartest way that I know how. My investor's job, they are capital allocators. I'm not a capital allocator. I'm, a bi- I'm effectively a business. I'm a user of capital. Mm. So my job is not to say how they should be investing their capital. My job is for them to say, okay, I've already got a bunch of money in the stock market. I already own my own home. I might, maybe I have a fixed income portfolio and I've got 500K or a million or whatever that number is that I would like to have invested in a very smart way in Los Angeles apartment buildings. Who is the person to whom I should give that money? And my job is to be the smartest person, the smart, you know, smartest, most trustworthy, what, however you want to think about it, user of that capital. I don't have those asset allocation conversations with them. What I would say, and I do have this conversation sometimes with like beginning investors who kind of want to write small checks to us, it's like, don't. No one should give us money. No one should give us capital for deals 
until they already have a whole bunch of other things that they invest in. They've already got a sizable stock portfolio. They've already got a pretty well diversified. They own their own home. They have like mm-hmm. a pretty well diversified asset base. And then, okay, this is a maybe an interesting thing to do with some por- some relatively small portion of my capital. We're not financial advisors. We're not providing. We are not. You don't pro- make that decision. We're not providing diversification. But, but I guess with your cash, what do yeah. you do? Oh, me personally? Yeah. I'll tell you, but let me start out by saying that my net worth is, I was thinking about this the other day. You're going to tell me the number? No, no. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> my net worth, I was thinking tell, about it, but I just- 10 inches, 10 inches, how big? <laughs> um, but on a percentage basis, I think like 97% or something of my, of my net worth is invested in Los Angeles real estate. So like I am committed, you know, and like, like I am, this is like my entire- bankroll, everything is in this. So what, when you ask me like, what do I do with my own cash? Like, yeah, I, I like have a bunch of money and like, you know, uh, I put my, my IRA contribution, $5,500 a year in the S and P 500 Vanguard. I screw around and like buy some stocks that I think smart people on Twitter are talking about. I, you know, I got a small stock portfolio, but that's all fucking, you know, peanuts compared to the, the, the apartment buildings. I think that's something I've, I've reflected on my buddy, Andrew Chen. He's pretty popular on Twitter yeah. as well. One of my best friends. And he's like, your life's work is AppSumo, the company yeah. uh, I help uh, start and run. And he's like, that's all your net worth. Because I hit him up, hip, he's an investor in HipCamp. And I said, dude, you're in HipCamp? Let's go buy some land. And then like, we can put some, he's like, yeah. go do AppSumo. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> but hold on. Uh, you're an investor in Substack. Should I start a newsletter and make like $1,000 a month? He's like, just, and so I, I do think there's something there about what is your active money and your main money? And then yeah. what is your side money? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have to get reminded myself that, and it sounds like, you know, you have the same approach, which is like your main money is your real estate. My main money is my absolute one. So it's like, let's try to remove the amount of distractions on the, these other pieces. Totally. You can end up chasing your tail, particularly, I mean, there's, oh, there's so hard. Well, I think so that, easy. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's a, a fundamental problem that smart people have when business and investing is it's very easy to get distracted by different things that seem cool. Ugh, you know, tell me about it. Writing angel checks. Like there's a million things you could be doing. There's a million. I like, in back of my mind, I'd like to start a loan brokerage. I have all kinds of ideas about that. And I like, I have some theories about residential brokerage and I got, I've got a million different businesses that I could start or invest in or whatever. But I got this piece of advice from a friend of mine who's, uh, who's my co-captain in the end of a wrestling team. And he backed me for a bunch of deals in the beginning and he's done extraordinarily well. And the advice was this. If you have something that works, keep doing it until it stops working or you're rich. Very simple. Like super simple. Like do not fuck around. Do not like get distracted by shiny objects. Whatever you're doing, whatever arbitrage you're exploiting, whatever vein you're mining, as long as that thing works, you keep working it. And it does and, and I basically have done a hundred of the same deal over and over and over and over again. The same deal over and over and over again. We got really good at that deal. Do I like look at a hotel sometime and wish that I could do a hotel visit, a hotel deal or a office building or whatever. Of course, like I'm smart, I'm interested, I'm creative, I want to do other things. But fundamentally, it's like, keep chopping wood. Like just keep, if you got something that works, you keep doing it until it stops working or you're done. Well, that is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Check out Moses on Twitter. That's at Moses Kagan, as well as sign up for his newsletter at kagansblog.com. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go make some strawberry jam together. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. Remember to go subscribe to my email list. You already know what to do. It's sendfox.com slash Noah. Plus, create your own email list at sendfox.com. 
and AppSumo.com, number one site online for entrepreneurs. Buy and sell all the software there. Use code NOAA10 at checkout, 10% off, and use code NOAA10 at checkout. If you're a brand new customer, you get 10% off already massive savings on great tools. Finally, a couple shout outs to my amazing team. Thank you to Jason, podcasttech.com. Sometimes I want to say the wrong domain name so y'all can't hire him away from me, but look, it's a free world out there, y'all, and Jason's the best. Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, Hubert, Jonathan, Sasa, and Jen, plus Cam of the Dork Team for all the stuff y'all do behind and in front of the scenes. I love y'all. So, and finally, huge shout out to the AppSumo marketing team. So much amazing stuff y'all do on the affiliate. We got Crystal, we have Max, there's Chris Gruyon, Nick Christensen on Sumo Day, and all y'all have done so many amazing things. Thank each and every one of you. I love seeing what y'all are doing. Have a scrumptious day. What's your favorite Pixar movie?